Well, I want you to imagine today uh, driving down a country road and seeing a healthy, abundant, flourishing vineyard. You know, grapes are just coming off the vine, the leaves are green, the soil is rich and dark. Without even thinking about it, what you'll know is that somebody did that. Somebody tended to that ground. Somebody cultivated that vine. Then imagine yourself driving down the road and seeing another vineyard that is laying in total disrepair. The fencing is broken, the irrigation is broken, the ground is obviously untended and full of weeds, and the vine is barely producing any life. The reason I hold out those two images to you today is because the passage of Scripture that we're in this morning is a moment where God's people in Nehemiah's generation we're entering deeper into God's renewal for their lives, deeper into what it looks like to flourish before God. And that's what the book of Nehemiah has been about for us, how God renews his people. And today, this chapter is an important step in God's beautiful renewal process for his people. Now, just to remind you, at this point in the book of Nehemiah, a lot has taken place. The people have repaired the broken walls. They've repaired the burnt down gates of the city of Jerusalem. They then had a moment where they read the Bible for six hours with the priest scribe named Ezra, who with a team of people explained the word of God to those who were listening. They responded to the word that they read by realizing that they were at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, and so they obeyed the word about the Feast of Tabernacles. And when it was over, they gathered together on another second day, and they read the Bible for three hours and then prayed for three hours. And this moment that we read of here in chapter 10 is what they committed to do in obedience to God after that three-hour prayer meeting. This was the contract that they were making, the covenant that they were making with God. And I think what had happened is that they had, as they read the Bible, had seen moments where Israel was like a flourishing vineyard. They also saw times where Israel was like a neglected and unhealthy vineyard. And they saw certain things that the Israelites were doing that led to flourishing and certain things that the Israelites were not doing that led to a lack of fruitfulness in the nation. And so what the Israelites did on this day is they made a commitment and said, we want to take God's pathway to flourishing. We want to commit to the things that God has asked us to do. Now, in general, what they covenanted with God is that they would obey what was found in the Bible. Look at verse 29 with me. All the leaders, Nehemiah and others, priests and others, those serving in the tabernacle, the temple, excuse me, uh, 83 names plus the families, everyone who could understand. They made this commitment in verse 29 that they would obey 
and make an oath to walk in God's law and observe and do all the Lord's commandments. So in general, what they were committing to is they're saying, we want to live a biblical life. We want to submit ourselves to God and his word. And I hope you're like there already in your life as a believer. I hope you're saying to yourself, yeah, that's what I want as well. I want to submit myself to God's word. But this multi-class, multi-generational commitment that Nehemiah's group made had three specific components. They weren't just going to say vaguely and generally we'll obey the word, but they said there's three things that we've continually seen the people of Israel, our ancestors, struggle with. The first area is they made a relational commitment. We see this in verse 30. They said, we will not practice intermarriage with the peoples of the land. And we're going to talk about this this morning, this relational commitment. Second, they made a chronological commitment. This is my cute outlining way of saying that they decided to commit their time to God in the form of keeping the Sabbaths and the Sabbath system that God had designed for them. And third and finally, the bulk of the chapter concerns a financial commitment that they made to God. They would give offerings and tithes to make sure that the house of God, verse 39, was not neglected. And as I said, they read the Bible and they saw that there were times where their ancestors had done these things and flourished and not done these things and lacked a season of flourishing. When they didn't do these things, they fell into disrepair. And all three of these commitments that they made in this chapter were good commitments for them to make. I already spoiled the book for you, though, and told you a couple of weeks ago that in chapter 13, they're going to fail in all three of these commitments. These weren't a new covenant people. They didn't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. So they, by gung-ho spirit, say, we're going to do it, and then they would not do it. But by God's grace, we're different. We live on the other side of the cross. We have the new covenant. We have grace and mercy and forgiveness for when we fail. And we have the spirit of God living inside of us as God's people. So we're going to try to think today about the commitments that they made and what they look like for us today and how they can lead us to the flourishing that God has designed for our lives. So the first thing I want us to consider, number one, is their relational commitment. If you're taking notes, you can write verse 30. Uh, for this relational commitment. I'll read it to you again. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, when you read that, kind of the first impulse or reaction is to think that what they were doing was making some kind of racial commitment. Like they were saying, hey, we're the Hebrew people. We don't want to uh, be diluted in any way. We want to have racial purity, so we're not going to intermix with the nations around us. But this was not a racial commitment. This was a religious commitment that the people of Israel were making. And one reason that we know that is because these people had just finished reading the entirety of their Old Testament history up to that point. And in their Old Testament history were lots of stories of people who were foreigners outside of the Hebrew people, outside of God's covenant community, who through belief in Yahweh, belief in God, entered into the covenant community and God accepted them. Uh, they would have read, for instance, of Moses, their main man, marrying an Ethiopian woman who became part of the Hebrew people through her belief. 
they would have read of Rahab in the city of Jericho, the first city that they were meant to drive out the inhabitants of the land from when they came into the promised land. And Rahab had heard the stories about God in Egypt and what he'd done to uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And she believed in God. God spared her and she became part of God's covenant community. Or they would have read the story of Ruth, a Moabite woman her ancestors had persecuted the people of Israel, but she became a believer in the God of Israel. And through marriage, she entered into the Davidic messianic line. She's like Jesus's great, 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 grandma. So they knew these stories because they just interacted with them. They knew that people from the nations could convert to Judaism and become part of their number. But what they also saw in scripture more often than those stories were repeated stories of compromise that started with sex and marriage with people who worshipped other gods. So they would have read the story of King Ahab in the north of Israel, who married a woman named Jezebel, and Jezebel introduced the god of her people group, Baal, to the land and persecuted the true prophets of God. They would have read of Samson's pursuit of Delilah and how he lost his divine gift and power as a result of that pursuit. They would have read of King Solomon who did expand Israel to great glory but then took all of that wealth so that he could amass a harem of hundreds of wives for himself and then he began building temples for his wives' gods in the holy land of Israel. They would have read of all of this compromise. They would have seen as they read the word, a demonic strategy that was continually at play against them. Whenever the enemy of their souls got their ancestors into relational compromise, God's people became absolutely fruitless. God's vineyard would lay in disrepair during those seasons. One big example of this happened when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They had to pass through to get there the land of Moab. Moab had a king named Balak who was afraid of the people of Israel. He'd heard what they had done to the Egyptians. And so he hoped that he could hire a sorcerer named Balaam who would pronounce a hex on God's people. So he pays Balaam this money. Balaam goes to a high place. Three times he tries to pronounce a curse upon God's people, but instead, three times, God makes a blessing come out of his mouth. And Balaam goes back to King Balak and says, hey man, I told you I couldn't do this job. These people are blessed by the God of the universe. I can't do it. But what the Bible tells us is that Balaam, knowing he couldn't hex God's people, gave counsel to King Balak. He told Balak, he said, what you should do, since I can't curse them, is you should take a lot of your young women, send them down into the camp to seduce the Israelite men. And if they engage in sexual sin, God himself will deal with them. And that's exactly what happened. And the people of Israel in Nehemiah's day, they read all of these stories. And they realized Man, we better make a commitment in this area of our lives, lest we also fall into disrepair 
and cease to experience the blessing of God upon our lives. Now, I realize that some of these stories, as I tell them, as I repeat them real quickly, they might seem a little archaic to some of you. Like, hey, this is 2022. Things have changed a little bit. You're coming at me with some crazy Old Testament stories. But I think there's a similar wicked strategy that's at play in our modern time. It seems to me that the enemy of our souls is doing everything that he can to generate sexual confusion and compromise with the goal of destroying the fruitfulness of God's people and also breaking up the institution of the family so that society is left to deal with the results of many broken families. And I think that our society in particular is ripe for this deception, partly because we have a highly individualistic view of how the world works. You see, some societies don't have a highly individualistic view of life. They have a communal view of life. So everything a person does in a communal view, they're thinking about how is what I'm doing going to impact my community? And others in the community feel a right to say, what you do impacts me, so what you do is of interest to me. But in an individualistic society, we delude ourselves into thinking that what we do behind closed doors has no impact on anyone but ourselves. But I think that shattered families, fatherless children, abused men and women, boys and girls, and the strained social support systems that are left trying to pick up the pieces all beg to differ. What you do impacts your community. And Nehemiah's generation un understood this from reading the Bible. So they made a commitment to a relational obedience to God. Now someone, in seeing this commitment that they made, this religious commitment, really basically saying we won't marry non-believers, we won't give our children in marriage with non-believers, someone might ask a series of follow-up questions today, wondering if such rules apply today. You know, maybe questions like, is it wrong to marry a non-believer if you're a Christian today? Is it wrong to live with uh, or sexually engage someone before marriage today if you're a Christian? Is it wrong to enjoy the hookup culture that we live in if you're a Christian today? And the answer to all of those questions biblically is yes. They are all wrong. They're all sinful according to God's word. But what I want to say today is that not only are they sinful, they're also unwise. This is why God declares them as forbidden, why God declares them as wrong, because they're unwise. They all hurt society, both the society at large, but also the society of the church. They are not a wise way to live. You know, for instance, um, you know, Christina and I, we have three daughters. I can't imagine what it would be like to raise children with differing worldviews and paradigms. Now, some people in Christ, they got married, then they heard the gospel, and only one of the spouses came to know Jesus. And if that's your situation, you know, God has grace for you. He wants you to press into the community of the church and find that support system. And we want to be praying for your spouse. 
that they would one day come to know Jesus, that we would think of them like a pre-Christian, you know, like they're, they're not there yet, but someday we're holding on in faith, believing that it's going to occur in their lives. As long as they're living, there's still time. And so we want to feel that way, think that way, believe that way. And if you're in that difficult situation, God can help and strengthen you. But to be a believer who knowingly enters into a relationship with a non-believer is exceedingly unwise. The two of you will have often diametrically opposed ways of looking at the world. And if I could say it like this, if you don't, you probably haven't read the Bible very carefully. So the reality is you're thinking about the world in two totally different ways. So it's an unwise thing. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? When John wrote, to the book of, wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, he received seven letters from Jesus. In Revelation 2 and 3, and Jesus wrote these letters or spoke these letters to John who recorded them down for the seven churches in Asia Minor that were in existence in his day. And to some of the churches, they received encouragements from Jesus. Some of the churches received minor corrections from Jesus. Some of the churches were just affirmed in love because they were being persecuted. And so Jesus said, you know, I'm with you in the midst of all of that. But there were a couple of churches in Revelation chapter 2, two of the seven churches, the church in Pergamos and the church in Thyatira, that were crippled by their sexual and relational compromise. It killed their fruitfulness. They could have flourished as God's people, but not with that level of compromise going on. And what they needed to do, according to Jesus, was repent. Let God be their Lord and obey his word regarding their sex lives. And he was promising that he would revive them if they did so. This is a really important part of experiencing renewal from God. Now, I recognize that at this point, you know, this part of my talk might be bothering some of you today. Uh, you might have wished that I gave like a little uh, disclaimer at the beginning of the teaching. Like, hey, you know, you might want to dip out for this one. Um, you might chafe at the idea that the Bible or Christianity or your friendly neighborhood pastor has any right to comment on your sex life. But what I want you to do is to consider all the sexual hurt that people experience today. You see, I'm not trying to deny for a moment that sex and romance are somehow magically only enjoyable in the confines of marriage. If that were true, we wouldn't need this little speech that I'm giving today. <laughs> There's a reason that people engage in all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. Nor am I saying that marriage is a magic pill that makes sex enjoyable. You know, there's lots of married couples who can attest to pain or difficulty in this part of their marriage. I'd encourage you, that doesn't define you. It's part of your marriage, but it's not the totality of your relationship. What I am saying is that the God of the universe, he knows our design. He knows how he made us. And contrary to popular opinion, he is the one who invented sex. He made it good. He made it exhilarating. And he made it powerful. 
So powerful, in fact, that in his mind, only covenantal marriage can handle its full force. To sexually experience someone without a lifelong commitment to that same person, it'll only give you a cheap imitation, a small taste of what could be. But the best sexual experiences require safety, they require freedom, and they require long-term exploration. You only get those in the covenant of marriage. It's only in marriage, covenanted together, that you get safety. You know, you're not leaving. If I don't perform well, if you don't like what happens here, you're not going anywhere. Freedom. Like, you know me, I know you, we're together. I'm not, this is not performative, but this is something where we're free together. And long-term exploration, you got decades to figure it out. Sometimes people ask me, like, well, what about, like, how do you know if you're sexually compatible with a person? Don't you need to experiment and figure out if you're sexually compatible with them? And I tell them, like, all that's going to tell you is that you were sexually compatible that day. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line, you're going to keep on working on this beautiful gift that God gives to you as a couple. Anyone can play at the base of a beautiful mountain. But only those who climb to its height can truly enjoy the fullness of its beauty. And that's how it is with sex. Many people are playing at the bottom of the mountain. But only marriage provides the pathway up romantic love's glorious mountain. So these people, they made that relational commitment to keep themselves separate from unholy alliances that would bring them into compromise. They realized this was a major part of God's pathway to flourishing. And I pray that every one of us here today would make that same covenant and commitment before the Lord. Decide that your life, relationally, sexually, romantically, that it will be different. And watch what God does. Okay, the second commitment they made was the chronological commitment. This is my way of talking about the way that they would spend their time. Uh, they had a Sabbath system, and they said they'd keep it. Look at verse 31. They say, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the Sabbath was an ancient way for God to mark the people of Israel as his people. And uh, he, the, the first mention of the Sabbath comes in the book of Genesis where on the, after six days of creation, on the seventh day, it says in Genesis 2, that God rested from all of his works that he had done. And he made the, Sabbath, the seventh day a uh, holy day. And for Israel, after they had been enslaved for 400 years plus in Egypt and had not had a day off for 400 plus years, God set them free. And then he said, you guys really need some, you need a day off. So every weekend, every Saturday, you're going to rest before me. And not only were they to take every seventh day off, every seventh year, they were supposed to let their fields rest. They weren't supposed to plant anything, plow anything, reap anything. And as Nehemiah's generation read the Bible, one thing they discovered is that there was a period in their recent history where for 490 years, their ancestors had not let the land ever have any one of those Sabbath rests. And that's what got them into real big trouble with God. And so uh, God 
took them to Babylon in captivity and through the prophet Jeremiah said, you're going to be there for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, for 490 years, they'd not kept the once every seven years Sabbath rest for the land. That meant there were 70 years that the land had not rested. So God was going to get the rest for the land that he had prescribed and then bring them back after that period of time. So when they read that, they're like, wow, this is really important. We just got back into the land because we disobeyed that for so long, we're going to commit to keeping the Sabbath. Now, why was this such an important attribute to God's people? And why was it always at the tip of the spear of their obedience or disobedience? And in short, why is the Sabbath a big deal? Let me give you seven reasons. First, the Sabbath reminded them they were God's people. I mean, when the nations around them bought and sold on the Sabbath, the people of Israel didn't. And since they all stopped together, every town and every village ground to a halt every seventh day. Even in Israel today, there's a different vibe on Friday night and all day Saturday. And it transforms society for a moment in time. I'm sure you've all had the experience of going to Chick-fil-A on Sunday, like you forgot that Chick-fil-A is closed. It's like, wow, imagine if everything was closed on Sunday. You know, it just like change your perception of society. And all of that reminded them that they were a people who belonged to God. They were different. And when we take a day for worship and rest every week, it stands as an opportunity to be reminded of who we are before God. Second, the Sabbath gave them a weekly chance to declare God's lordship over their lives. Every time they kept the Sabbath, what they were announcing to God and to themselves was that God was the Lord of their lives. And when we take a day for worship each week or a day of rest each week before the Lord, it's a weekly opportunity to declare that God is our Lord. Third, the Sabbath taught them to respect the limits of their humanity. You know, they didn't have the strength to work well every single day of the week and still flourish. They tried before they'd been forced to in the land of Egypt, but they did anything but flourish in that season of their lives. They were decimated by that everyday work experience. And so to take a Sabbath meant they were communicating and acknowledging we have limits. There's only so much we can accomplish. We need God's help for the rest. And when we take a day of worship and rest each week, we declare to God and ourselves that we have limits. Fourth, the Sabbath forced them into more dependence on God. You know, you work on Saturday, you're trying to provide for yourself. But when you don't work on that one day a week, you're saying, God, you better make up the slack. You better provide for me. And I'm trusting that you will provide. I'm depending upon you. And when we take a day of worship and rest before God, each week we are giving God a chance to provide for our needs. We're giving and saying to God, we're dependent upon you. I think of like a young man who's like, you know what? They keep making me play sports on Sunday mornings. I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to trust that God's going to advance my career and skills in this area. If he wants to, I'm going to be dependent upon him. Fifth, the Sabbath elevated the work ethic of the nation. I'll say it like this. Some people needed to be told that they needed to take a day off each week. But my assumption is that there were lots of others who needed to be reminded that they needed to work 
the other six days of the week. Not every day is Sabbath day. And I think when we take a day for rest and worship each week, when it's a defined, like this is a moment where I'm going to stop, it makes the quality of the other six days a week uh, better. You know, our work improves. Sixth, the Sabbath made them distinctive from the nations. No one else behaved like this. There were thousands of ways that Israel was called to be different, but the Sabbath was one of the first of those thousands. Why is that important? Well, because when we take a day for worship and rest each week, when we, what we're doing is we're setting a pattern in our lives where we're saying, I'm willing to be weird. I'm willing to be different from society around me. They'll think that what I'm doing is wasteful, but I'm willing to take that step. And that will help you with down the line, the other things that you're going to have to do as you're reading the word and you go, okay, I'm going to have to be different in this area of my life. The Sabbath or this day of rest primes you to be able to do that. And finally, seventh, the Sabbath had a way of centering them afresh onto God. They would get a chance for quiet reflection, scripture reading, enjoying creation, enjoying their family, enjoying relationships. And every Saturday, they'd get centered again on God and their most important relationships in life. And I think when we take a day for worship and rest each week, we give ourselves a way to recenter on, on God and uh, his gifts of his relationships that he's given to us in life. So Nehemiah's generation, after reading the Sabbath's importance in the Bible, they committed to it once again. Now, given the way that I compare the Sabbath, the, the seventh day, Saturday in Israel's history, to the Lord's Day, Sunday, today, you might wonder if I think that the Sabbath is required for Christians today. There are some solid Christians who think that it is a requirement. I, I don't. Uh, Paul the Apostle said it this way in Romans 12, 5. He said, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right, so for me, myself, I am fully convinced in my own mind, for myself, for my life, for my family, that the Lord's Day, Sunday, it's a day that belongs to the Lord. But the reason that I drew some parallels between the ancient Saturday Sabbath and the modern Sunday Lord's Day is that I want you to consider the benefits of this kind of day in your life. To stand reminded that you belong to God. To declare God's lordship of your life. To respectfully acknowledge the limits of your humanity. To more deeply depend on God. To be trained to work hard when it's not time for rest, to be distinct from society, and to be centered afresh on God. These are all beautiful benefits of taking a day of rest and worship before God. So like Nehemiah's generation and by the power of the Spirit, I encourage you to make the commitment of your time for God. Like I've said in other studies, give them the first hour of your day, give them the first day of your week, and watch what happens. The flourishing I'm talking about, I think, will eventually be the downstream effect in your life. I think you'll see Daniel-like results. Remember Daniel when he was carted off to Babylon as a young teenage boy? He was a Jewish kid. He knew he wasn't allowed to eat unkosher food. And they tried to feed it to him. 
And he said, I can't touch that. You know, I'm a Hebrew Jewish boy. I can't eat those foods. I want to honor God with my life, even though I'm far from home. And they said, well, we're kind of worried that if you do that, the king's going to see you get all emaciated and weak. So Daniel said, well, test me for 10 days. Let's see what happens. And after 10 days, God let Daniel's flesh, it says, be fatter and healthier than everybody else. And I think that when you make these kind of commitments to God, though people might scratch their heads and say, you're really going to waste that much time doing those things? You're going to see some downstream results that make you healthier and stronger than you would have been without this in your life. All right, let's consider the third and last commitment that they made. They made a financial commitment. This is really the bulk of their contract. Uh, they knew that it took money to pay for the temple to be what the temple was supposed to be. There were priests to pay. There were offerings to provide. Uh, it all cost something, and they committed to pay for it all. And really, the closing sentence is kind of the way they felt about all of it. Verse 39, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, when they read through the Bible during those times with Ezra, what they'd read were times where they had neglected, the, their ancestors had neglected the house of the Lord. In fact, in their recent history, um, to their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation, a prophet named Haggai had to show up. Haggai said things like this. He said, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God said, it's, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while well, this house lies in ruins? So they read these things and they understood, okay, we've got to make sure that we prioritize financially God's house. So they made this third major commitment before God. Now, I want to talk to you about the commitment that they made. It's obviously different than the financial commitment we might make today towards planned giving or generosity. And I want to preface my comments by just saying that, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament that you know, we should be cheerful givers. If we can't be a cheerful giver, then we should just refrain. And I give you full permission to do so. You know, God has always provided well for this church. We got no major need. There's always more that we'd like to do and like to accomplish. But God's been very good to us. These last couple of years, he's proved his faithfulness time and time again. As churches have gone through all kinds of financial strain, God has been great to us and has provided well for us. So I've got none of that motive in my heart right now. I just truly want your life to flourish. And I think this is the best practices towards that flourishing. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that their giving was planned. It was something they planned to do. Said every year we're going to pay a temple tax. Here's all the things we're going to buy. We're going to take the chambers in the temple and store up X, Y, and Z in the chambers of the temple for a rainy day. They made plans to give, plans to provide for the worship system that God had given to them. And Paul told the Corinthian church in the New Testament that planning is helpful when it comes to our generosity. He said concerning a gift to the church in Jerusalem, he said, 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside during the week, store it up as he may prosper, so as he makes money, so that there be no collecting when I come. You're just planning on it, Paul is saying, each day of the week, or each Sunday of the week. And this planned giving 
in both the Old and New Testaments, I think is a wise pattern to follow. Uh, People I know who have adopted this in their lives and have planned their giving, planned their generosity, they tend to be financially prosperous in many other areas as well because they're used to telling their money where to go. They've put their giving as a line item in their budget. So the rest of their spending also is not haphazard but is planned. But the second thing I want you to see is that, and bear with me on this point, but their giving was also pretty boring. And what I mean is that some of their giving was for exciting things like the daily sacrifice. Like, I bought that for the people of Israel. But a lot of their giving was pretty boring. Bread, grain, firewood was one of the things. Like, we need firewood for the altar to be continually burning. And I think that we can relate. You know, it's super exciting to uh, give to someone in the church who's helping Ukrainian refugees, and we should do that. But it's not as exciting, if we're honest, to contribute to the church's electric bill. Just not as, not as exciting. But that's part of worship. The mundane, everyday stuff is important. And God sees all types of giving. And the third and last thing I want you to see about their giving is that it was high quality. All through the text, it says they brought the first fruits of their crops and the firstborn of their family and the first of their dough and the first of their wine and the first of their oil. Now, all of this meant that they were giving God the absolute best. And this high quality giving, I think, is an important template for giving to God today. We're often tempted to give him the leftovers of our lives. If I can do it, then I'll do it. If I can't, I can't. But God is worthy of the best. Now, some of you might be wondering, just like with the Sabbath, if I believe that Christians in the New Testament era are required to tithe, to give a tenth of their income to God. With the Sabbath, I said, no, With the tithe, I want to say I don't think so with some reservations. So let me explain. One reason why I have a reservation are biblical reasons. Uh, Abraham, it says in the Old Testament, way before Moses came and way before the law was given, Abraham met a priest named Melchizedek and gave Melchizedek a tenth of all his belongings. Now, when Jesus came along, what the book of Hebrews tells us is that he fulfilled the law for us. That means the law of Moses. Well, Abraham wasn't operating in the law of Moses. He was operating, he was actually donating to the priesthood that Jesus belonged to, the priesthood of Melchizedek. So he was doing that, Abraham was, before the law was even given. It gives me some hesitation. Another biblical reason or clue is that in Matthew chapter 23, You might remember that passage where Jesus is eviscerating the Pharisees. He's rebuking them for all kinds of stuff. And one of the things he rebuked them for was that they were so careful to tithe even off their herbs in their spice gardens. You know, like they divvy it all up, a tenth for God, the rest for us. But they totally ignored justice and mercy. They totally ignored all that. And Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 23, he said, you should have done all that. But you should have also made sure to do the weightier matters of justice and mercy. So there's some biblical clues that kind of make me uncomfortable with just saying carte blanche, like, no, the tithe is not for today. It's harder for me to to dismiss than the Sabbath requirements. 
But then there's a practical reason too, not just a biblical reason. And the practical reason is this, or, or maybe I could say an experiential reason. I've personally known lots of people for whom the tithe has been a regular practice in their lives, and it's just been a phenomenal blessing in their lives. God's provided for them. God's taken care of them. God has used their lives. They've gotten so many other things under control in their lives. It's just been a beautiful blessing in their lives. But all that said, the New Testament seems to present a way of life that's beyond the tithe. One where Christians really say to themselves, what I really want is not a number. I want to be as generous as humanly possible. That's really what I want. The gospel's gotten a hold of my heart. So it's hard to say that Christians are required to tithe because that might just come up short from what God truly desires. Instead, we should be as giving as we can because it all belongs to God anyhow. And the New Testament pattern, like I already alluded to, is joyful, cheerful, and regular investment in God's kingdom and in gospel work. We're to plan to give. We're to give proportionately to how God has blessed us. And we're to keep it as a private matter between us and God. And the New Testament seems to suggest that when we do this, God will provide for us as we invest in his kingdom. There's lots of passages that talk about this. Like when Jesus talked about the giving of our alms and he said, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Or in 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul is talking about financial generosity, and he said, in that context, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So I recommend this manner of life and this kind of commitment and covenant before God. Now in thinking about all three of these things today, this relational commitment, this chronological commitment, this financial commitment, there's probably not any of us here today who are like, killing it, did them all, <laughs> you know, nailed it without fail, uh, for decades, I've just been living this way. We struggle, we're tempted, we fall. Uh, and so wonderfully and beautifully, we live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ than these people did. And so there is grace for us when we fail. You know, only the gospel message can help us get cleaned up, back on our feet, moving forward, forgetting that which came behind. But this message is really important because our culture is hell-bent on telling you the exact opposite in all three of these areas. That relational commitment, our culture is saying to us, hey, if you have such sexual desire that is unfulfilled and unexpressed, it's like the worst thing ever. You're going to explode if you don't get a chance to live out your desires and dreams and fantasies. But here we're seeing, no, there's a way to flourishing that isn't that. Or society will say to us, hey, it's your time, it's your life, do with it what you want. Don't let any deity, don't let any divine tell you what to do. You should just find religious systems that accompany where you're already headed. And they don't reorient your life in any way or reorient your schedule. But as Christians, we're saying, no, I don't, I don't think that that's true. 
I think that there is a schedule that should be submitted to God. And then this final one, finances, you're living in a time and in a culture and in a society that is going to try so hard to tell you that every church, every ministry in existence is just a power-hungry, greedy organization that's trying to take advantage of you financially. And that certainly does and can exist, but that is not the only thing in existence on the face of the earth. We have to say to ourselves, no, God wants me to be faithful. I need to invest in his kingdom and in the work of the gospel here on earth with my treasure and watch and see what God does in my life. So receive his grace today. Just let's move forward together in obedience to him.